Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Justin Engels, you are a successful and technology and financial services executive and you have a genuine interest in all aspects of the human experience and how it interacts with technology. But of course, you're so much more than just your job. A family man dedicated to his family and his two children. You're a lifelong learner fueled by curiosity and big questions. We've been friends for a few years and I suggested you come on to the podcast to talk about technology innovation. And your answer was no, boring. If you're not innovating, you're not anywhere. I want to talk about AI. I want to talk about how it relates to society, culture, humanity, art, writing. You said to me that AI is so smart, we're going to need, we aren't going to need smart people in the way we used to. We're going to need to leverage our humanity. Justin, let's explore what that means. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, AB. As you said, colleagues and friends, uh, absolute pleasure to work with you at CUA at the time, Great Southern Bank now. And um, while we're on the record, I'll say the thing I enjoy most about you is is the way that you can play with an idea, keep it in the air, keep the conversation, the arguments going about it, and you don't have to accept it. But what you're doing is you're exploring it. And I love that. And I reckon we'll do some of that now. Yeah, I hope so. And I think think with this particular subject, it is exploring it because I don't expect the answers are going to be easy to come by. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think... You know, AI is such a hot topic at the moment, right? Um, You see it in the news, you see people talking about it, you see a dozen launches of AI products every single week. Uh, It feels like a land grab. It feels like every business is trying to ride the AI wave. I think um, even prior to AI, people struggle with identity, you know, humanity, who they are, what it is to be human. It's been thousands of movies about it, thousands of books about it. I think that um, experiencing AI and looking at the AI evolution and maturity, it actually gives a really useful angle into really understanding who you are, what is humanity, and ironically, it's about looking at what AI is not. So in in my view, what, what I'm sort of discovering is all the things that I enjoy about people, all the things that enrich my life, all the things that I want to develop in myself, have one thing in common, uh, which is that AI doesn't do it. AI is not those things. Um, I, I think it's an interesting way to look at it. If you think about all the imperfections uh, that you have, that I have, everybody we know has, what is our human nature? Um, that's what's really enriching in terms of our experience, but it also enriches those relationships. Um, the way that I'm grumpy when I'm hungry, AI is not grumpy, let alone hungry. Uh, the, the way that I'm error prone when I'm tired or, you know, my social filters get reduced if I notice someone bullying or some sort of injustice, you know, my behaviour changes. Um, you see a slightly different side of who I am and that sort of that tapestry, that beautiful tapestry of being a human that we all have. AI will never have it. Um, and, yeah, I, I do think that we won't need smart people in the same way that we do today and we have in the past 100 or 200 years because AI can absolutely do those smart things. It can calculate, um, it can predict, it can look at probabilistic type information, um, but it can't do what we can do. And, um, you know, that's something worth us talking about. Do you think we'll keep doing what we can do? 
or is there a danger that we'll lose what we can do? And what I mean by that is if you think about social media and what it's done to to us and how we interact and how we behave with each other over the past 10 years, there's much more divisiveness, much more polarity, much more arguments. You know, we say things online that we'd never say face-to-face. So, so it's, it's changed us. And, and, you know, whilst you sit here on earth now and, and you know, we, we've probably got another, I don't know, maybe 50 years and we'll die, we probably won't change that much in our lifetime. But what will it do to the generation that comes after and the generation that comes after? From an AI yeah. perspective, could it do the same? I, I think there's potential. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we can choose to look at AI in a few different ways. I think doom and gloom seems to be what sells newspapers and gets the clicks online. Um, losing that ability to do what we do, um, I think it's actually a stretch to say that we're at risk of losing it. I think that um, there can be a pendulum swinging from generation to generation. And I think that that's something that we've always struggled with, though. Um, And AI is adding a bit of fuel to that fire, but it's not igniting it. Um, If I just give a simple example, you're in a corporate environment subconsciously you're getting a little bit weighed down by the meeting that you're in. Everyone else has turned up. They're a bit like robots. Um, They're saying and they're acting the way that they ought to, not necessarily saying the things they want to say or acting the way they want to say. Um, That's a shame because you lose a lot. You lose a lot of ideas. You lose a lot of friction, uh, interaction, creativity. So that um, nature that we have to sometimes constrain our nature um, has always been a problem. AI has the short-term potential to make it a little worse because people will respond to emails using AI. They'll write their slideshows using AI. You take away um, some of the battle, some of the torture that you go through to get to good ideas and to get to good outcomes. But I think that in the long term, um, there isn't a risk there because um, things will settle down. And this is always the way if you look through history, you know, a hypothesis, an antithesis, antithesis and and a synthesis in the end. There is no doubt um, that the same thing will happen with AI. It just may take some time. I think that the fact that you notice when you're in that sort of meeting, a lot of people uh, try to be disruptors in that sort of environment. It shows that that's what we want. It shows that we don't want the experience of uh, wearing augmented reality goggles or talking to each other through a screen if we can help it. We want to be human. Um, and, yeah, I, I think the future of AI and humanity is a lot more sort of colourful than the sort of dark and doom and gloom that we're seeing uh, in the media. That, that's my view. It is really easy to fall into the clickbait mentality. And I had a mm. chat with a guy called Steve Brophy, episode one on this podcast, and he seems quite hopeful. He he's hopeful about AI, and and you know he thinks there's always going to be that need for the genuine human element of creation, and and I think he's right, in part, but I'm probably a little bit more on the negative side, and I worry that that the bulk of Earth will that perhaps don't have the choice or the ability to choose the something that's human created might fall into having to consume something that's created by technology and then just accept it and like it. And actually what even worries me more is they might give it godlike status. I was, I was playing with an idea today. So pink is coming to the gold coast in concert next year. 
and the tickets are about $300, so they're expensive. And she's going to be fantastic, she always is, but she'll be human. So there'll be bits in that show where she runs out of energy and there'll be bits in that show where she's perhaps slightly off key and there might even be bits in that show where she trips up or something like that. And that's and that's the beauty of that. I could see a future where with AI and holographic technology that you could reproduce that entire concert for a $20 ticket for a AI-created holographic pink that has boundless energy, is pitch perfect 100% of the time, and you know has the technology to to look at you and only you all the way through the concert. You know, and, and she's doing that to every single person in the audience. And people that aren't privileged enough to pay for a three hundred dollar ticket will will take the twenty. And then do they give that AI created solution? godlike status and and crave it if we think the kardashians have affected our teenage children now with unrealistic pictures of who they are on the internet what does an ai created world then do to them i'm with you and what's scary about it is of course that it's technically feasible um you know already in the works nvidia is partnering with large marketing companies to create ai generated video advertisements that is just for your eyes so you're not seeing a mass-produced ad. You're seeing one that knows about you, knows about what you like, and you're getting an ad that appeals to you. So, so this kind of tailoring is absolutely in the future. I think that human judgment and the desire for real um, trumps it. If I can give an analogy, you, you can kind of think about these AI outputs or even in terms of large language models, AI entities themselves, is quite two-dimensional. They're like two-dimensional characters in a book you read or, or a film you might view, and they can pass as real people from a particular point of view, um, but the truth is there isn't any substance behind it. Just like a square can look like a cube from a certain angle, the truth is that it doesn't look like a cube from many angles, right? There's just one. There's no depth to it. Um, people... Uh, can get tricked, but ultimately, uh, and this is an ethical question, they shouldn't be tricked and they should know that what they're looking at isn't real, even if they can't figure it out themselves, um, because, because you know, this trickery is only going to get more sophisticated. Um, this is, for me, it's the same as AI. It's a simulation of Pink doing a performance. Um, it's not uh, Pink. People will get that. Um, but that's a very sort of extreme example. I think there are other scenarios that won't be as obvious that you don't know. It's just like a chatbot talking to your bank. Mm. You don't know if it's a human or not. Now, that's an ethical problem that we have to deal with as a, as a whole society. Um, but the scary thing is the technology will get us there. However, it will never get us to the point where um, the simulation is so rich that under proper inspection, you can't tell that you're not looking at reality. Um, however, recently, I think it was back in January or February, a, a very smart Google engineer, you know, it's not easy to get a job at Google. He came out and, and he said that he believes the large language model at Google is sentient. Um, he believes it has feelings. So this is a highly intelligent person who has been tricked. Um, it's a bit scary, but but I, but I think this is the kind of thing that we push through. We just we just go through some awkward phases. It becomes something that's known, and um, ultimately become richer for it because 
what is AI in its basic form other than a tool, right? Um, a hammer, a screwdriver, a cigarette lighter, they're all tools. What we're really talking about is how we use it. Um, a lot of tools can also be weapons. It's all about how you use it, what your intent is. Um, I, I think there's there's a whole lot to unpack there, um, but, but I believe that an audience ought to know what they're looking at and therefore won't accept things that aren't real. Um, but there is a risk that they get tricked. Yeah, and, and I think that we do have to work through these teething problems and we do have to work it out for ourselves. It's really easy to fall into the doom and gloom. I'm quite mm. positive about what AI can offer us. I think it's good to explore the extremes from an awareness perspective so that we can we can be aware of the traps that we might fall into. No, no doubt. Um, you know, you see films like Terminator, you see other extremes. Um, it's almost not fair to talk about AI as this collective, is it? And not entirely sure uh, your depth of knowledge on it or the audiences. I appreciate you saying your first podcast was around AI. It might just be worth saying that it's it's a very broad set of tools. It's um, some someone's AI may be a chatbot. Uh, other people would scoff at that and they would say, no, large learning, large language models are AI. Uh, other people would say, no, they're not. Uh, AI needs to be um, a, a generic sort of uh, intelligence entity. So so there's very broad definition, very wide discrepancies in it. And um, uh, and that's interesting too. I, I suppose it's worth talking about a little bit about how large language models work. Mm, yeah. uh, because, you know, when you see a large language model in action, you're thinking to itself, you're thinking, how did it know that? Or you're thinking, how did it reason that? How did it come up with that answer? It's very, very impressive. Um, but they work in a very simple way, um, even though they're a very useful tool. I think the way they work is, you know, taking a significant amount of written text uh, in any language or potentially all languages. Um, in the case of chat GPT, you're looking at a whole lot of text. So... Um, in the many, many gigabytes. I, I recall it ends up being hundreds of thousands times the amount of text that's even in the King James Bible. So you're looking at more words than you would read in your lifetime that you and I combined would read in our lifetime. Um, and then there's training over that data. And it's not training in the human sense. That, that's part of the problem here. The language that we use, we're overloading words and we're attributing human behaviour to these computer programs what training actually means in this language model context is essentially calculating a map of all the different terms and all the different contexts that's found within that massive set of data. And to put it simply, calculating the probability of them following each other. So almost like navigating through the streets, you know, what's the probability that I'm going to turn left or turn right or, or whatever? Um, it's a little bit like that. So... An example might be if you were to start with the word good, it's probable that the next word might be night for good night or boy for good boy. Um, but good boy would never be followed by the word tree. Um, so it's actually as dumb as that. It's very simple algorithms that are just using a whole lot of computing power and a whole lot of data that, of course, was created by humans. Um, 
generative AI is not actually generating. It's using a whole lot of pre-existing text and calculating the probability that words fit each other. Uh, and it looks phenomenal. It, it actually is a phenomenon that even, um, that even what we see out of it is biases, which is a bit scary. What we've got with this particular technology is algorithms that don't have any bias, but the data that was used for training may have biases. Um, it definitely, the AI model that is, it definitely keeps peddling those biases when you ask it questions. Um, and, you know, you can't help but have unintended consequences and unintended biases from them. So I, I think it's right to be really hopeful, but also wary. Um, there's a need for ethics reviews. There's a need for regulation, just like any tool, right? You, um, you, you think about a vehicle as a tool, like I said, tools can be weapons. You know, you can use your vehicle as a weapon. Um, we put a lot of regulation around weapons, around conflict internationally, you know, and locally on what you can do, what you can't do. With AI, there really isn't anything yet. Um, there's people deciding by their own moral code or set of ethics what they should be doing. We're, we're in a good position because we are wielding this hammer at the moment. You know, the hammer's not wielding us. If we hit ourselves in the thumb with the hammer, well, that's our fault and we can learn from that and we can adapt. But I also think that it's true to say we don't have to wait to have a sore thumb to start thinking about regulation and, and responsible usage of the tool. And I think from a regulation perspective, we do we do need to do something about it. And I know some, you know, the UK, for example, is is doing something. America is probably sitting on its hands a little bit at the moment but should think about doing something. And then, of course, all the tech leaders, there's a large number of tech leaders that have written a letter saying we should slow this down until we understand a little bit more about it. Just going back to biases, there, there's some interesting things in there. I was playing with Midjourney uh, probably a few weeks ago now. The versions might have changed a little bit. And Midjourney is the, the, the application that will generate pictures for you based on prompts. And I just wanted to play with it and just see what it did. And, and I said, for fun, do me a picture of the IT community uh, panicking about the rise of AI and and what's going to happen to them. The picture that Midjourney gave for me was a picture entirely of middle-aged white men wearing grey suits. They and that's how Midjourney chose to represent the IT community, and, and that was amu an amusing, but potentially worrying example of a bias within that software. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great example. And, you know, um, although mid-journey is getting better and better, there are still signs. I'm sure when you generated that, there were still signs that you could tell it wasn't real. It wasn't either a real painting or three, it wasn't Three sets of teeth. Yeah, exactly. And um, it, it's really, in my mind, a, a sort of bigger picture theme here is this adding complexity adding fidelity until it's indistinguishable from, say, a photo or a painting. You can't tell, is that a real Picasso or did Midjourney do it? I think that's the point where things become a lot more murky for me. Uh, it's where the tool can be weaponized. It's where people can be uh, tricked uh, or defrauded or, um, or otherwise. I think what I was reflecting on earlier today is there's this saying, and I'm sure you've heard about it, um, this saying, which which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
I, th I think it's lovely, right? So imagine you have a cigarette lighter. You and I know it's not magic. Um, but if we just go back a century, it, it absolutely was magic, right? That's a technology that at that time would be indistinguishable from magic. I think I've, I've got a slight improvement on that saying, which is that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from nature. Um, and that's where I fear that there is risk and, and there's some problematic topics to kind of get through. For starters, nature is just way cooler than magic anyway. You know what I mean? It, it's wonderful. I mean, magic does things like makes a rabbit appear from a hat or can make a ball disappear under a cup. Um, but nature gives us rainbows, and sunrises and and asteroids and galaxies and then even magic can't compete with nature. So I think it's a bigger statement to say that an advanced technology can one day be indistinguishable from nature. I think that's the way we should actually think about AI and the way it's going. In the case of pink, it could be sufficiently advanced that people believe they are watching pink. Um, in the case of your bank's chatbot, it could be that, that it's indistinguishable from a real person or mid-journey's painting looks genuine. Um, and a 3D printer has even made the rough bumps that the paint strokes make a reality as well. Um, you know, that that's all possible. And I think that's the right way to think about the emergence of AI over the next few decades. Um, having said that, to trick a human who is, uh, you know, savvy about AI and, you know, knows they're potentially being tricked, I think there's a long way to go. Um, I, I don't think it's around the corner. Even if we were to say double the advancements that we have today, you know, chat GPT is twice as good, mid-journey is twice as good. I don't think that's anywhere enough either. I don't think 10 times is enough. I think we're talking about an exponential continual evolution in order to get anywhere near being able to trick people. Um, you know, you, you might get a screen that's got Frank Sinatra moving around. They might even use AI to get his voice spot on. Um, but uh, it, it's not enough. It, it's, it's just not enough. Yeah, and I would, I would probably go and see Frank Sinatra. I'd probably want to go and see Elvis generated by AI, but I'd know, I'd know he wasn't real. But it would just be, it would be interesting because it would be an experience that you could never have otherwise. Oh, absolutely. And and just before you go on, I think that one way to look at that is on the negative side of going. We need to protect ourselves from being tricked and and all of that kind of stuff. One of the themes that you see in in commentators about AI, but also films and books, is that it's generally a, a dystopian future that's being painted, right? It's generally the poor humans who are under the thumb of AI or whatever. But as we do sort of further AI towards being able to mimic nature, um, life gets better. Um, you know, so you, you can think about your washing machine and your dishwasher, these things take away chores. I've got a, a robot vacuum cleaner that does an awesome job, so I haven't vacuumed in years. Humans always find a way to fill the void that they have uh, when chores go away. So we, we can look at AI advancing so that you don't need to lift heavy things anymore, you don't have to put yourself in dangerous situations, you don't even have to go and do the shopping or drive yourself wherever you need to go. 
AI as a tool, as it gets more and more advanced, has great potential to take so many laborious or tedious or dangerous things off us and, and do a better job of them than we could ever do. And we get to not only enjoy that, but better decide with more freedom than ever before how we spend our hours and our days and our lives. You know, we can choose to um, further the skills we have that we know that AI could never have, like, you know, genuine compassion, genuine emotion, genuine politicking. Uh, we could choose to spend our time learning about history or just reading for the pleasure of it. Um, I, I think it would never get to the point of, people just, you know, living their life at the beach and and doing nothing because people need a purpose. People need to be productive. They love giving back. Um, nobody really wants to escape to a paradise island by themselves. There's no purpose in it. No one wants that. We will always look to fill that void um, by doing good, by furthering ourselves, by enjoying ourselves. And you think about the things that we've spoken about, like you getting to see Frank Sinatra and Elvis or you getting chores taken off you. It's not a poor humans situation. This is a this is very nice for the poor humans. I hope that happens. And I hope that as the difficult, the mundane, the dangerous aspects of life are taken off us, I hope we have the opportunity to be really creative with the time that we have available. You know, I hope we can move to a four day, three day, two day, one day, zero day working week. But then we have to think about how we make that happen. And we talk about regulating AI. Maybe maybe the answer is not just regulating AI. Maybe the answer is regulating how we as a society work in a post-AI world. Because as it stands today, if AI can do the work of a lot of humans and can take a lot of that away, what's likely to happen is four days a week won't be given back to humans with full pay. You might find that you're just not doing anything and you've got no pay. And and that can happen and we see things like that happen in different parts of the world and different elements of society so we need to make sure that that's not the case because that won't then become the utopia of everyone writing poetry and playing music and engaging in meaningful discourse it will be the bulk of the world struggling while a few people do not but there's potential for that there are so many factors um you know if you were to think about something like farming the way that ai could um, take farming somewhat out of human hands. It could be that it um, does a much better job. Um, you know, productivity is a huge benefit. Quality is a huge benefit. It could be that, that humanity uses AI as, as a wonderful, and robotics, of course, as a wonderful tool for farming. Um, and even though we're working less and earning less, we don't have to spend as much. Um I'm not saying that's what will happen. I, I don't even know if that's probable. But there are so many factors that make it unpredictable in terms of what's going to happen. I think that that unpredictability is probably what spurs the fears. Um, and every, sort of every generation has this. And, and you kind of see it when you speak to older men as well. It's always doom and gloom. It's always back in my day, things were better. The previous generation didn't have to worry about this. However, if you were to speak to the previous generation, they would have the same themes, the same sort of problems all the way back to the beginning of, of being able to articulate problems. Um, we can't even predict the weather tomorrow, right? That's how rubbish we are. Um, and that's using the best technology that we've got today. 
whether you go to the Bureau of Meteorology or you're using, you know, Yahoo, Google, anything like that for your weather forecast, it feels to me like a flip of the coin almost. Um, how on earth could we predict what the world is going to be like with AI? So I think that actually causes us to start hypothesizing in the negative, worrying about the, the what ifs. Generally speaking, um, humans not only adapt, but thrive. It's kind of, it's, it's in our nature. It's what we're famous for. It's what we tell ourselves is our differentiating feature. Um, everything will be okay. That That is just the truth because we will make it okay. Uh, there'll be pockets of people who are worse off, parts of the world that are worse off. Absolutely. But this is just another tool like the car, like the space shuttle, like fire. Um, all of those things could have, uh, you know, nuclear, all, all of those things could have been the demise of humanity. Um, none of them have been. Yeah, there could have been. And the question I have is, how important do you think struggle is to humanity and to, to bettering us as humans? And even if you break it down to an individual, yeah, are you better through having some element of struggle in your life? Yeah, of, of course you are. In fact, that's one of the things that is fundamentally differentiating us from the AI. It's the emotions, it's the journey. Um, it's, it's how you get to exhibit the sort of behaviors that you have. I think um, struggle is around, and, and, and you kind of said it when you asked about the individual and the collective, struggle is around sometimes... Um, uh, being able to unite people. Oft, often that's what where the struggle is, right? Um, there's, you know, there's wars, there's divide. Um, you were mentioning about it with the polarising sort of data that gets trained on AI and, and just seeing white men in the majority uh, picture and so on. I think a more positive way and, and a more realistic in terms of probability way to think about AI and uniting people is that it's actually a tool for uniting. I see a really clear path for it to bring people together at the, at the macro level, which is, um, well, it's a bit like your favourite sports team. There, there's, there's fierce competition and struggle, as you put it, to get yourself selected into the team. But once you're in the team, you're united. In fact, you now, you now look at a, a common adversary there's another competition now which is the rest of the teams in the league you're all united in your sort of uh struggle with the entire league um in australia may, maybe that sometimes you know a few times a year changes again where individuals from across the league come together to play for their state now now the the struggle between those individuals goes away they're now a united team Further again, and this kind of cascades, you can find yourself playing football for your country. The person who used to be your adversary is now your best mate, and you're shoulder to shoulder in the in this new struggle where you're united, and your your struggle is now against uh, international opposition. So this just goes on and on. And um, where humans do have concerns about AI, it's uniting in the very same sense. Um, so you and I might have competition between us, struggles between us, some sort of adversary. But when it comes to considering a threat or a risk and, and AI in a lot of people's eyes 
is one of those things. Um, everyone should be aware of that. You're kind of foolish to think there's zero risk. It's a uniting opportunity. Um, no, no difference to the sporting analogy. So, yeah, I think I think that's a long way around answering your question. That I think it's part of that struggle, and that struggle is is in the end what does unite people. And that's why I want to have these kinds of conversations. You know, at the risk of being too doom and gloom, I want to play with the ideas so that we can be aware of them and, and think about how we can counteract them. If I take my black hat off and be a little bit more positive for, for a second, but also go full sci-fi, I've been playing with with an idea which I don't think would happen. If you think the whole Skynet scenario, AI takes over the world and decides to exterminate the humans, I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking, well, why would why would AI do it? What would be the point? AI can't retire to a beach. You know, AI can't go on a wild holiday at some far-flung part of the world once it's got rid of all the humans. AI can't amass wealth. It shouldn't. It should never feel greed. So in full sci-fi mode, I was thinking, why, why would they try and kill all the humans? I can't see that it would be worthwhile, unless, of course, it was... It's for the good of Earth that we get rid of the humans because they've done too much damage. I'm interested in full sci-fi mode. What your thoughts are around that one? Yeah, it's it's a great thought. I think, you know, if we just look at some pop culture, you, you take a film series like The Matrix, the question that you're asking, they struggled with it so much that they proposed that humans are batteries for the AI. Um which is crazy, right? The AI could use solar panels. The AI could have used the warmth of the earth. There are so many other ways that a technology that sophisticated could power itself. Um, surely even harvesting polar bears would be more uh, productive and economical than harvesting humans. So even with all their millions of dollars and fames, our writing abilities, mate, um, you've got to probably a better, a better answer than they have. I think... Um, I'm with you. It, it could be that a uh, a model of some kind can determine that the Earth is better off without humans. However, I think that's actually a moot point because where your question is, why would the AI try to kill all the humans? The real answer is that there is no why. That's that's the why is the difference between humans and AI. So if we think about, um, and, and you're very familiar with this through all of your leadership experience, the difference between what, how, and why, we talk to humans all the time about that. Computers, AI, um, even Terminators, right, in this sci-fi case, they're amazing at the what, Um because they can be given requirements, they can be given briefs, they can be given data that, you know, is, is really, really, really strong. They're amazing at the how. Um, you know, they, they could pick up a car with, with one arm and you can't even pick up a car with two arms. Uh, but they don't even have a why. It's not that they're rubbish at the why. They just don't have one. Um, I know that's a, that's a little bit strange to think about, but if you imagine where, say, a future where um, AI-powered robots physically look the same as us, um, it's absolutely possible that what they do can convince you, this is in the Terminator case, you know, what they're doing can convince you that they're a real human. Even how they're doing it could convince you that they're a real human. But why it's doing it 
is the real difference. There is no why. You know, it's doing it because an algorithm says so or because the data is predicting that probabilistically this is the best what to do and this is the best how to do it. But it doesn't have a why. Um, I think it's a really profound question that you ask. And I think we can take solace, if anything, that there is no why. Um, if, if you imagine... Um, let's just say that the Frank Sinatra or the Elvis or something a bit more uh, evening, someone playing a piano, the an, a, an AI robot playing a piano, um, it could play it absolutely perfectly. Um, it might even put in some imperfections in its piano playing to trick you into thinking that it's a real human. Uh, it might even slouch a little bit at the piano so that how it's playing it looks more human to you. But why is that robot playing the piano? It's absolutely not playing the piano because it wants to further itself or it wants to make a pleasant sound or because it appreciates a particular piece or it gets a certain feeling uh, from the audience enjoying what it's doing. There isn't a why. Um, I, I think that keeping that in mind, those fears, the full sci-fi, you know, going full potato. Um, I think I think there's comfort there. I like the fact that artists that I'm interested in do what they do because of what what who they are, where they've come from, and what interests them. I don't even have to like their work all the time. I find it, you know, Jules Holland will always play boogie woogie on the piano. I'm not a massive fan of it, but I love the fact that he always does it. I love the fact that he exists and that's what he's in for. And when you watch his show, he'll bust that out and do that for 10 minutes at some point in the show. That's a great thing. And, and he does it for him. AI wouldn't do it for anyone else. That's right. Back to the tricking question, and we would never want to be tricked by AI and we must try and resist it. There's something I, I often toy with in the house. And, and prior to this conversation, I thought I had the right idea but I'm interested in your view now. So we have a lot of um, Alexas around the house. I'm going to call her Janice from now on because if I say her name out loud, she'll want to get involved in the podcast. So we have a lot of Janices around the house and and they're really useful to me and I always get Janice to play music and I always say please and thank you. Should I? Because Because I have kids in the house and the kids don't say please and thank you and that raises the hairs on the back of my neck when they don't. And the reason it does that is I think if they treat the computer like that how will they treat a human they might be quite quite able to distinguish between the two so i don't know whether i'm doing the right thing in the please and thank yous because that's the way i treat humans or whether the kids are doing the right thing because they've distinguished that the computer is different yeah so um obviously i don't know the truth but i take the same approach to you um i use manners when, when I'm speaking to the AI, when I'm speaking to Janice, um, except, of course, if I'm, for example, asking for tomorrow's forecast, it's pretty hard to put pleasantries around that. But um, where, where your question is around the way that your kids are learning, it's really similar to the point that you made maybe half an hour ago around cyberbullying because they're both faceless interactions. So if you're bullying online or if you're talking to Janice uh, in an impolite manner, 
it's faceless. You don't get feedback from, from the individual that you're interacting with and, um, and therefore you don't learn. So if, if uh, you know, we're in the workplace and I, I say something to you that's a bit unpleasant, you know, maybe about your latest haircut or, uh, or that no one does three buttons up on their polo shirt anymore. Everybody does. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see a reaction in your face. You might not even mean to give me that feedback, but you're going to give it to me. Um, if I were to do that online, you're not, you're not giving me that subconscious feedback. You might do some explicit feedback. I'm sure you would, knowing you, the way I know you. Um, but I would miss out on the, the raw feedback. And so, yeah, your, your kids are missing out, and, and mine are too, on the raw feedback um, when they interact with these devices in that sort of way. And to be honest, even if you get vulgar with the devices, um, they don't give you feedback. They roll with the punches. Uh, they treat you like the master and they apologize for upsetting you. So yeah, it's uh, it's just one of those things. But of course, um, it, it's a little bit full circle to the comment I was making earlier about technology mimicking nature. So, you know, with my kids um, and your youngest, congratulations, of course, growing up, um, iPhones, televisions, the ability to, um, you know, just order McDonald's on your phone, all these things aren't being introduced to them the way that they'll introduce you or I. They're born into it. It's essentially nature. Um, they take it for granted. They don't think about how it was created. They don't get too curious about how it was created any more than they're curious about how the tree in the backyard was created. Um, so I, I think that, you know, humans and this generation that grow up in that kind of environment will be able to differentiate between um, the way they ought to interact with people versus the way they ought to interact with AI. I, I think, you know, our, our brains are pretty sophisticated and kids can figure that out. However, reinforcing good behaviour by talking to Janice nicely, even though you don't have to, I think it's the right thing to do. Um you know, always hold your heroes to a higher standard. You know what I mean? And um, and we are the heroes of lots of kids, and yeah, we ought to. Manners are important. One time, um, well, well out of the earshot of kids, I did try to start some beef between Janice and Siri with some quite provocative questions, and she was having none of it. She didn't want to get into that beef, and she was quite complimentary of the values that Siri brought to the world, which was which was nice to hear. Did you see the launch of Apple's Vision Pro augment, augmented virtual reality headset today? Yeah, I, I did. I, I'd like to hear your take. What a fantastic piece of equipment to start with. The To, to sit down and, and put it on and watch a movie or play a game, 100% fully immersive. What a fantastic piece of equipment. And knowing Apple, it's going to be perfect. All of their equipment's brilliant. There's two interesting things about it. One from a tech perspective, as I was watching it being demoed and I saw somebody playing a FaceTime call and it was saying immersive FaceTime, massive screen, I thought, where's the picture of the person that's wearing the headset? How does that work? And then later on in the product launch, it talked about mapping the face. So it was using basically an AI version of the face that was tracking your 
movements, gestures, including your hands gestures during a, a FaceTime call and representing it. So that was in, that was an interesting point that I just noted and thought, so if I'm FaceTiming you and you're wearing that headset, I'm not really seeing your face. I'm seeing a represent, representation of it. And I'm not sure I like that, but but it was fantastic tech. And then my second observation was knowing how immersive phones have become and the fact that people can be glued to them, even to the extent that people are developing bad necks from, from using them. I was worried about the world where everybody's got them on and whether that would remove the personal connection. Clearly, you can see through them. They made a big deal about this. You can, you can interact with people while you're wearing them. You understand the environment that you're in. But that, that did worry me. The, the kit's going to be fantastic. People are going to adopt it. It's expensive to start with, $3,500. It will go down in price. It's going to be a beautiful piece of equipment. But that was my one worry. I said to my partner while I was watching, I said, this is a bit terrifying. I'm not sure what it's going to do to people's relationships. Yeah, um, it, it'll be good to watch if and how and when it gets accepted. Um I guess the range of human personalities makes me feel like some people will accept it uh, a lot more easily and quickly than others. Um, in this case, it's a little bit flipped. It, it may well be, for example, the introverts are the early adopters of this kind of technology rather than extroverts, which which tends to be the way. You know, they're, they're not so into the uh, interactions with people face-to-face -face and so on, sometimes barriers that are an interface between two people really helps with people's anxiety and so on. So it may actually be um, preferable for some. I, I suppose um, it's about options, isn't it? And it's about the evolution. So you can think about what you're, you can think about this product as a very early generation version of the ultimate product, which is, who knows, contact lenses, chips, uh, or just normal spectacles that are giving the same kind of functionality, productivity, tool set, um, but do away with the clunkiness and, and bring back a more sort of natural human interaction. Um, that's probably the way it would go. I think, you know, we've evolved over so many years to pick up social cues you know, yawn when someone else yawns, apologise when someone scrunch ups their face because you've said something wrong. It's so inbuilt in us. Um, it's not learned. It's in our it's in our DNA. These are these are instincts that we're that we're born with. Um, you know, collectively, we'll never accept um, not being able to see each other in that in that way. I'm, I'm sure. I like that thought actually. The fact that, that this particular evolution of the tech might bring some personality and interaction back to our online existence, almost as if we spent you know a bit of time in the wasteland where all the possibilities were there, but, but the tech wasn't quite there to allow us to truly interact as humans, and perhaps now we're getting back to a position. And that's a really positive thought to have, that, that that's what it could do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Or... Or maybe Pink will wear a set when she's on stage and all the audience will also wear a set when they're in the audience. And what they'll be seeing is an avatar version of her, even though she's actually there. So, I mean, all of these things are possible. But the truth is, 
um, you know, we people don't tend to accept things that have clunkiness or that take away from our experiences. We, we just don't. You know, this kind of product will survive if and only if it improves a particular experience. And maybe it will for some people, the sort of home office, remote and so on. Um, but I personally like to, to see your face in this. Um, as you know, I don't even like to wear headphones when I'm talking because it kind of changes the resonance and so on. I can't quite pick up how I'm portraying myself as well as how you are. So I, I like to be as free as possible. And um, mentioning Pink just now made me think we probably didn't hang on that topic you raised earlier of music. It's um, It's an interesting one for a few reasons. I think creativity... Um, artistic license, all of that is one topic. And then other things like copyright and protecting creative materials and so on is another. I think that, um, you know, the kind, you can see it on my wall. I've got some of my heroes um, up on my wall and one of them's Bob Dylan. I think when you look at great songwriters, you know, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, uh, Towns Van Zandt, they hook us in by providing these deep human stories. Uh, they tell us about their tragedies, about love and death and dirty country roads and all of that kind of stuff, right? It's all about their experience coming through. Or it could be figments of their imagination. We don't really care, but, but we like the way they do it. Um, and we like that it's a connection. So if you look at chat GPT or BARD or any other large language model out there, they can string together a bunch of words designed to pull at the heartstrings that they absolutely can. Um, AI could even put together a few guitar chords that will draw out the nostalgia in you. Um, and they maybe they'll even clone the voice of your favorite singer, right? So they can do it all. We've already talked about why would they do it. There's no why, and that's what separates us. But that's also what the audience needs. They need that why. So that's why it's not the same for most. I, I think that's why it's not the same for me. Um, I value that Leonard Cohen, as a poet, tortured himself for months to write Hallelujah, right? Tortured himself for months to, to write this amazing song. The emotional depth, the individual perspective, the authenticity, um, a genuine creativity. And I can't put that value anywhere near the value of a poem written by a large language model like ChatGPT. And it writes it at a speed that I can't even mash the keyboard at that speed. So the AI tool had no reason to write the poem um, other than it was asked to. And, and at the end of the day, that's that's not what people want. Um, and that's the ethical problem almost back to that piano player analogy as well, who, who looks the part, acts the part, doesn't have the why. Um, we're not buying it. No, no one's buying it. That, that's my view. And, and there's positivity in that. It sounded like a negative sentiment, but it's not. It, it's a glorious sentiment. I think it is positive. As, you, as you're speaking, I'm having an internal struggle thinking, what am I okay with and what am I not okay with? So if all of a sudden Bob Dylan launched a load of new music and AI created new tracks, new performances, 
and it's and this is Bob Dylan as he would be today. I would not be okay with that because it's not Bob Dylan because Bob Dylan's a real person, and that wouldn't be real. But I was okay when Carrie Fisher was replicated in Star Wars because she was a character. I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong, but I was okay with it. And I've seen a video of Christina Aguilera performing in Vegas with a hologram of Whitney Houston performing I Will, I Will Love You. That didn't particularly offend me, and it was, it was quite nice and interested to see that interaction because it was clearly fake and it was something I'd seen before. I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong, whether I should be okay with that or not. So some things I'm not okay with and some things I am, but it doesn't follow a rule and it's probably entirely different to what you're okay and not okay with and it's probably entirely different to what someone else is okay and not okay with. And and that's okay, um, you know, because thankfully you're not AI and, and you're allowed to have ambiguities and make mistakes. Um, Carrie Fisher being in Star Wars was presented to you very authentically. You were told that it was AI. You, you didn't have the wool pulled over your eyes uh, and you weren't being tricked. Um, part of the reason you're okay with it, I would assume, is because it's kind of technologically cool. You know, for example, I don't believe, I would suspect you wouldn't want to go and watch a whole new feature film starring her in this simulated form. In terms of a Bob Dylan album, I guess that's different because um, it may be that someone's trying to trick you. It's not being presented as, hey, here's a simulation of Bob Dylan performing songs written by an AI large language model. Um, so it's kind of about how it's presented to you and the ethics and whether you're offended by that. So you were given a choice to go and watch a simulation and you did and you loved it. That's great versus you've been presented with something that's a fake and that that always offends people um ai isn't the first thing to be used as trickery or whatever and so we're used to that and i think that's where your emotional response might come from i think there's another way to look at it as well which is that um bob dylan has always potentially i don't know the guy used tools to write his music. Maybe he's picked up a thesaurus to find words that rhyme with each other. Maybe he's picked up a dictionary to get inspiration or he's used some sort of um, uh, other tool. Uh, a lot of people objected when he went electric. That's the use of a tool that people thought that he was being a bit of a sellout and a fraudster. So his use of tools isn't new. Um, where AI is just a tool, and that's the way I, I hope humanity always thinks of AI, I think that it's open game. I think that um, when an artist is creating something, it could even be a painting, they've got a whole lot of tools at their disposal. Uh, paintbrushes, palettes, rollers. They can use carrots if they want. Some people like... Um, uh, using using tools that I probably shouldn't mention on here, but you can buy off eBay and Amazon if you're not embarrassed that your neighbours might see the packaging. Tools are open game, and AI is just a tool. It would be disingenuous to sort of try to um, trick everyone by going, here's the latest song I've written, you know, and all I really did was say, hey, write a song in the, in the key of C in the style of Bob Dylan. Um, yeah, that would rub people the wrong way, I think. Where I think this 
leads logically is is to the idea of um, ownership of what's created, um, ownership of the copyright to certain things. So if I if I did or you did, um, well you did. You got Mid Journey to give you a picture of a sort of dystopian panic about AI, and um, you could easily get it to write you a poem in the style of Banjo Patterson or a song in the style of Bob Dylan. Um, my view is that while these technologies are still unregulated tools, um, it's open game. I think the question about copyright and ethics, um, being able to copyright things like chord progressions or the use of certain words in combinations, um, we even have colours that, that organisations like Cadbury's are able to copyright for their ads. Um, without even thinking about AI fairness, there are all sorts of questions now that most people wouldn't be comfortable with on on copyright law and copyright rules. So this is another thing where AI is adding fuel to a fire, but it's not the one, it's a Billy Joel reference almost, it's not the one igniting the fire. And as it stands, the way that the rules are, um, I think that if, if an artist or even a pretender was to use these tools to create something new, um, that the current rules and the current loopholes um, are all open game for it. And, you know, if you fast forward that, you know, you probably go down the road looking at some tighter regulations, some tighter rules, some changes. So I think we can expect a whole lot of uh, social rules, legal rules, industry rules to change because of this. But until they do, um, yeah, I think there's there's a bit of a land grab to be had. At the moment, there's there's some common sense and moral rules around using it. I think the moral things are don't, don't create things that are heavily based on someone else and pass it off as your own and don't create fakes. And the bulk of, the bulk of people are going to do that because the bulk of people obey society's rules. The common sense ones, and I think when we talk about AI and, and people inevitably are going to use it, and I think some people are there and they understand the risks, but, but I always like to try and try and talk about them to for anybody that's not aware of the risks is just be really careful when you're using it the chat gpt 3.5 or 4 or bard you know or, or bing or, or even ones that exist on your corporate network just be careful what you put in in there because i certainly don't understand and i think a lot of people don't quite understand how it's going to be recycled so we know that samsung developers put some specs through a large language model and and it was recycled and they were dismissed because of it. You could put things on there that is proprietary to you and then it can be recycled and used by someone else. And we just don't quite know how that's going to work. So be really, really careful if you're going to use it. Definitely use it. See how it can make you more efficient and and better at the things that that I guess matter the least in terms of creativity and human interaction. But have your eyes open. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think we're gonna we're gonna hit our thumbs with the hammer several times, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll evolve, we'll learn. The technology will continue to grow faster than we can adapt to it. Um, so this feeling of struggle that we've got right now, it's not going to go away. We'll always be playing catch up. You know, the fidelity, the detail on what's coming out of AI is always going to get better. 
we're always going to be playing catch up on, oh, okay, it does that now. How are we going to change the rules to protect ourselves and, and so on with that? So I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the warning you're giving people to be careful, it applies now and in the future. Um, that's right. I think, um, you know, the other thing about rules, which is somewhat interesting, is that um, geopolitical view of things. It's it's a crass analogy that, you know, the the simple the simple view of um, well, they have nukes, we should have nukes too. Um, regulation for AI, I suppose, would never be global. Um, it'll always be jurisdictional based. So the other dynamic to think about is the old they have nukes, we should have nukes too. Um, does does a country, does a sovereignty um, limit itself and put itself in a worse competitive, a worse economical, a worse political position by not steam charging ahead with AI, getting involved in that land grab that we talked about, getting involved in all the innovation, exploring things, pushing the limits, does the winner geopolitically end up being the, the country that does away with the rule books? And I think the answer is no, no government will slow it down for that reason, because they can't afford to. They can't afford to. So at the beginning of this conversation, we said we weren't going to get the answers, and we didn't. But we have raised a lot of questions, and it's been a really interesting conversation. Just to kick about the ideas, I am positive about the benefits that AI bring. I'm also really positive about the uniqueness of being a human. And, you know, and I love being a human and making the mistakes and having the successes that I have. And hopefully that continues generation to generation. I guess to end, you know, if, if we were to have one piece of advice in terms of go ahead and use AI and and make make your day easier, what would be the piece of advice to anyone to say, but do this with the time you get back? Hmm. Great question. Um, mine would be to understand yourself, understand your values, what makes you happy, what is your purpose in the world? Like I said earlier, nobody wants to be by themselves on a desert island as it sounds like paradise, but it's not. Find a purpose, hone your skills, never lose curiosity, never, never lose the desire to learn and to serve and to have a purpose, those are all the things. Um, and, and and probably lastly, what I would say is that um, AI may end up looking like us, you know, um, it may end up sounding like us, it may end up doing what we do, it may end up doing things how we do it, but it will never why like us. Uh, that's the thing I, I really want people to understand because there's something emotionally compelling about answers when there's a genuine why behind them. Um, and AI will never have that. Now, having said that, it could trick you and you may be fooled, um, but just like your Tinder date might turn up looking nothing like their profile, um, you've been catfished essentially. Yeah, I like that one. My, my, my advice is going to be a bit simpler. Use AI for every half an hour that you get back or the first time you hit half an hour back because you've been more efficient using AI. 
get out, go for a walk, buy someone a coffee, pay someone a compliment, give them a hug. Do that. Do that one thing. Use AI. Go and connect. Beautiful. Fantastic conversation. Um, Thank you very much, Justin. I really appreciate it. You've made me think about a lot of things, which I thought you would. And uh, I'm sure we'll do this again at some point in the future. Name the place, Matt. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Ciao.